Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Suddenly, in the blink of an eye, tapping into their inner sexual self and their mojo just comes out. And all of a sudden, I can tell they're going from, am I, am I moving my hips right? Am I carrying my weight right? To just sinking into their body and just having sex with me like a lover and you can feel it. And it's my favorite part of the work is when that happens, when all of a sudden their mojo comes out and they just, they just, all their sexual self is just not buried inside anymore. It's, it's, it's coming through their skin. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassing Game and I am your host. Today, we have Kristen Casey on Ask the Expert. Kristen Casey is a writer and recovered alcoholic and addict. Her memoir, Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh, documents their tumultuous six-year relationship and drug-fueled train wreck breakup. She survived numerous addictions, clinical depression, a suicide attempt, the panhandle of Texas, and 17 years of Catholicism. Her writing has appeared in The Fix, Please Kill Me, The Foliate Oak Literature Magazine, The Nervous Breakdown, Spread, and elsewhere. She writes about addiction, dependency, sexuality, and relationships. She resides in Austin, Texas, and is a certified sexuality counselor, intimacy coach, and IPSA-trained surrogate partner. Kristen Casey has a wild story, and she the book she wrote, uh, we touched on briefly and her uh, life with Joe Walsh of the Eagles and her recovery. Her current profession as a surrogate partner, performing surrogate partner therapy, is really, for me, what I was interested in her expertise in bringing her on this episode. And boy, did she blow my mind absolutely created a a really wonderful storyline and vision for the importance of what she does as a surrogate partner. I had no idea about the depth of this work. Frankly, I even, you know, had judgment about it, if I'm being honest. And I, as always, when I judge anything, was totally blown away by what she shared and the circumstances with which she helps people heal. And I just love all things healing. So she had me. And I I think you are going to be fascinated by this episode. And I'm really excited for people to learn about it and to know about this as a resource as it relates to sexual dysfunction and normalizing talking about sex, communicating during sex, and communicating about sexual dysfunction. So I give you on this week's Ask the Expert, Kristen Casey. All right, episode 102, let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. 
Kristen Casey, thank you so much for being here. This is so exciting having you on Ask the Expert. I'm delighted to be here. I love your podcast. I think uh, you do. Uh, you're, you just do such an amazing job. Thank you. And you have thank great you. guests and great topics. Well, you are contributing to this. So I want to tell you, I don't even remember how this happened, but surrogate partner therapy came on my radar and I went down a rabbit hole. And I found you on Instagram because you you're you know what you do in, in with surrogate partner therapy, and then also your amazing background. So I am just really excited to talk to you about this. However, we have to start with one thing. Uh, we start this with every guest, which is a the worst childhood haircut picture or haircut picture. And uh, I have, we posted on the Instagram and I have your picture and I was curious to know if you could tell me a bit about it. So God love my mother. She's very much of a, a DIY person, you know, like she, <laughs> she made our um, pillow shams and, you know, she hand sewed a lot of things and she cut, she had five kids, you know, she didn't have a lot of time to be running us to supercuts or whatever. So when we were little, at least for me, because I had bangs, it's all, she didn't put a bowl over my head, but she did take masking tape and she would tape it oh, across boy. my, my bangs to get that straight line. <laughs> but in no way, shape or form is that a straight line. Like <laughs> if my mom, if I didn't know my mom as well as I do, I'd be like, were you drunk? Because oh my, my mother God. doesn't drink like hardly at all. But that is just, yeah. And that was pretty indicative of what my bangs look like for most of my childhood until I <laughs> briefly got rid of them. I almost sent you my first mohawk, but I had one picture of that and I was with somebody and I couldn't quite cut her out where it looked. And I thought, you know, I like my mohawk. I don't want to make fun of my mohawk, you know, my pup yeah. days. So, so I sent you that one. Yeah. I love it. Well, we'll take both. We will take mohawk and this. I love it. And, you know, I used to not understand how kids ended up with these haircut, these home, you know, haircuts or whatever. And then I had kids of my own and I, you know, you, you go through these periods, their hair grows really fast. You don't have time. All of a sudden it's in this really awkward thing. You think you're going to just, how hard could it be, you know, yeah. clip it. And next thing you know, they have a mullet. It's, <laughs> it's in a photo somewhere and it yeah. lives on forever. And yeah. then the next generation gets to judge us yeah. on, on those photos. So I, yeah. I, I, um, I appreciate that. So you grew up with five siblings well, there was uh, me and four others. Yeah. And right, so right, right, right. Total. There were five of you in the house. And uh, where did you guys grow up? Um, born and raised in San Diego. You know, my parents were young. I think they got married at 20 and 21. Like my dad is, I think, one or two years older than my mom. And so she had three kids. I She had me at 25. So we were coming out every two years, one and a half years. My, the next was like three. She had four of us in a less than seven year period. And, uh, you know, they were Catholic, so whatever, if, if they were using birth control at all, it was the, you know, rhythm method, or I, that's what they used to call <laughs> it. Was, it you it know, was the not working method. It was, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and honestly, I don't think my dad minded a bit. My dad really wanted a big family. Yeah. But they both worked a lot. Like, they were starting from scratch. My mom was an emergency room nurse, which is a stressful job. And, and yeah. I mean, when I think of being 21, 25... I was so deep in my addictions. I would have, and I told her this once. I said, you and I had our problems that honest to God, if I'd have been, if I 
had on my plate, which you had in the first yeah. half of your twenties, I'd have gone out for a carton of milk and never come home. Like, oh, I don't know how she 100%. did it. Yeah. And so, you know, every five years we sort of moved up a little bit, you know, we moved into a bigger house, better neighborhood. And, and so by the time I was, you know, 12, 15, um, we had a gorgeous pool in the backyard. Everyone, almost everyone had their own bedroom. Finally, you know, the fifth one had come along kind of late. Uh, we lived in a gorgeous neighborhood. We had a boat and a three car garage and we went, you know, water skiing every Saturday and went on a lot of vacations as much as my dad worked and my mom worked. Um, she really made an effort to make sure that we went on a lot of, we went skiing a lot, water skiing, snow skiing. California is such a great place to go. Yeah. And then when I was 15, um, my dad had invested in this fish market with a partner who was kind of unscrupulous. And I don't know the, all the details of that story, but it, but it just blew up and we lost everything. And so at 15, which is kind of a delicate age, I just started fitting in. I had just kind of found a group where I thought the punks, the punk rockers, where I thought I belonged. And, um, and then that's when we were uprooted and, moved to Texas where my dad just had a little bit, he was in real estate and he had just like a little bit of, of a thing going on there. So it was like, we're starting over in the panhandle of Texas. And, um, I've been here almost ever since I did leave. I fell in love with someone, you know, I finished uh, high school in Amarillo, came to Austin for college cause it was in state and they were kind of giving me a free ride. And Austin is sort of this oasis in Texas where it's very eclectic and, and artsy and creative. And I fell in love with it. And I thought, well, I'll go to school here and then go back to San Diego. But like a lot of people, I just ended up staying. And then I fell in love with someone who lived in LA. So I moved there for a few years. And then when that ended, I went to Vegas for a few years um, in the depths of my addiction because it's just such a great place to be self-destructive. Uh, and then when I got sober, I came back to Texas. So I've been here in Austin for more than half my life officially at this point. But I still, I consider myself an Austinite and still sort of a Southern California girl, but not really a Texan. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And and you actually had you you wrote a book about you wrote a book you fell in love and were dating Joe Walsh of the Eagles. How long was that relationship alive and well? Well, I don't know about well, but it was alive. For, <laughs> it was alive for six years, uh, over a seven-year period, because we broke up after five and then got back together. Uh, that last year was really sort of a pathetic. He had gotten sober. And in that period, in that period when we were broken up, actually the day we got back together is the day he got sober, the day he went to rehab. And then, um, when he got out of rehab, we were, so that last year he was like, his career was taking off again on that Eagles reunion tour. And I, while I had quit cocaine, cause he was no longer paying for it, I was unable to quit drinking. And so I was really spiraling. So we were together for six years, but, um, we lived together like we, we had a real relationship for like five years, um, from the time I was 20 to 25. And this was in the uh, late eighties, early nineties. In your book, Rock Monster, how, what is the, the, the meat of that story? What makes that story so interesting and, and deep that you like to share? You know, that story has a lot of layers really. Um, but if I always whittle it down to this, it's about dependency. You know, it's about my dependent. It's it's the story. It's an addiction memoir, right? It's a rock right. and roll addiction memoir. The setting of my relationship with Joe in the rock and roll world 
and the glamour and the excitement and the celebrities that went with it. You know, that was, it helped sell the book, you know, but the truth is the reason it's in there is because that's when the, the worst of my addiction took place was in that relationship. But also I wasn't just dependent on substances, you know, I was dependent on that relationship. You know, we had a very codependent, dysfunctional relationship, but I was very dependent on my identity as a rock star's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And what happens through the course of that book, when I met Joe, I was just, I was at 20, really finally starting to figure out who I was and own that person and get excited about that person. I was acknowledging my, um, my sexuality, my feminist principles, my creative, you know, writerly side. I wanted to be a writer. I was going back to school. Um, I was a little quirky. I was really political. I was, you know, a little, um, rebellious, you know, in a good way, questioning authority. You know, I was, I had a strong sort of masculine, energy about me, but I was tapping into my femininity as well. I mean, I was doing a lot of the growing up at 18, 19, 20 that I think most people do in their teens, but I was drinking and drugging in my teens. And I had kind of backed off from that a little bit and gone back to school. And that's when I met Joe. And here's this guy who's like, and we were madly in love. I mean, I fell in love with him before I knew even who he was, that he was even a celebrity or, you know, the, the really big one that he was. And I very slowly over that first or second year we were together, made conscious and unconscious decisions to give up my dreams, mm-hmm. my writing, my school. Mm-hmm. I dropped out of school twice. And to just take on this whole new identity as a rock star's mm-hmm. girlfriend because it was easier and because I had such a huge fear of failure. You know, I, I really didn't have a, a tremendous um, belief in myself as a writer or in any way, you know, I was a very insecure person and who knows how long it would have taken me to kind of get my bearings had I not met him, but I feel like I would have done it at some point in my twenties. I was heading in that direction, slowly building my confidence and, and, and striving towards my goals. And this is not something that is necessarily Joe's fault. You know, he was actually really supportive of my writing and trying to get me into school, back into school and all that. But, you know, you see people do this all the time, mostly women, but not always. People lose themselves in relationships. And when you have mm-hmm. someone who's so young and impressionable and insecure and someone who's so powerful and, and exciting and successful, by the time that relationship was over, and of course he was an addict, he was a coke addict and an alcoholic. And so my addictions, which you know, I was still drinking, but my drug addictions were really, um, on the back burner. If, you know, I had kind of, I'd quit the speed addiction that I'd had at seven, uh, uh, 17, 18, of course, living the life with him, it was inevitable that I was going to launch into cocaine. And pretty soon, like I was out doing him and as much in love as we were, we had no communication skills, no relationship skills and huge addictions between the two of us. And eventually, you know, it just, we fought so much, it blew up in our faces and we ended up breaking up. And at that point, because I had built my life and identity around him, I felt like I was nothing. I mean, there was nothing of me left. And so the next two years was basically me just trying desperately to drink myself to death because I saw no reason for me to live anymore. So the book is that trajectory from dependency to self-determination or empowerment or, you Mm -hmm. know, and then of course, you know, it, it ends at early sobriety and there's a whole another trajectory that comes after that. My thirties were another journey of, of really trying to, um, pick up where I left off, you know, find that, creative, ambitious, strong feminist self 
and um, reconnect with humanity and learn how to be um, a friend, a daughter, a sister, a partner, and a form a relationship and fall in love again in a way where I wouldn't lose myself. And so um, the next book is actually going to be a lot about making every dating mistake in the world. And um, <laughs> I think it's going to be a little funnier. There's not not a lot of celebrities in it, but there's going to be more. I think it's going to be funnier. Oh man, that's good. Well, that, you know, it's funny. I, I see celebrities go through these breakups and I always think to myself how painful that would be to, you know, I just seeing, I haven't gone through a breakup where you see them on Facebook on someone else's page, you know, just like that kind of thing or running into them and you're just devastated for a while. Amplify that by you know, a hundred thousand because this person is on, you can't not run into them. You can't not hear their song on the radio. You can't not. And just the, the difficulty that that would be and and how few people really understand what that feels like. I, I can only imagine that at the peak of your addiction, that that would just be gasoline, you know, right on the fire. It really was actually. And especially after we broke up, um, for good. And then very shortly after that, he had a gig in, I was living in Vegas at the time and he had a gig in Vegas and, Mm. um, you know, yeah. And I, I didn't, I had to be really careful listening to classic rock for years, radio stations back then people Mm -hmm. actually listened to radio stations, um, because I could get triggered really easy. And I, it took me a long time to come to terms with it, to, you know, to process that. And, and then as soon as I thought I had like three years after I got sober, so five years after we broke up, he was on TV, apparently playing guitar on some things. A friend of mine saw it and he was wearing a wedding ring. And so she called to tell me, Oh, I guess Joe got married. And then I'll, you know, I went through a whole, that set me back. And I was like, I don't want it now. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. But, um, I don't know at the same time that which does not kill you makes you stronger. And it, and it would force me to deal with it too. If I would hear a song on the radio, there were times, um, when I would, and those feelings come up, you know, you realize, Oh, I guess I'm not fully over this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then if you're like me in the program and you have those coping skills, um, you inventory those feelings and you mm-hmm. work it through. So on the flip side, you know, it could actually, it, it, it probably benefited me. How long have you been sober? Uh, last month was 24 years. That's amazing. Thank you. That's amazing. Congratulations. Okay. And uh, so this launched you I mean, this, it's interesting, right? Because you're talking about these relationship skills, you're talking about finding yourself, you go through this truly extraordinary, you know, experience with Joe that's unlike most people's experiences with relationships. And then you, you're writing a book about making every other relationship mistake in the world. And yet you have this background, this professional training that you know, only 50 people-ish, you know, maybe in the world have that's related to relationships, being an expert on relationships. And I I wonder, what is it about, can you tell us a little bit about, so you're a surrogate partner therapist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So surrogate partner therapy is a, um, it's an adjunct modality in the field of sex therapy. So it's a niche type of sex therapy in which we work with the client and their therapist. It's a very specific 
type of therapy. It's, it's experiential, meaning hands-on. Now, uh, the terminology you have to be careful with um, because what my title would be surrogate partner. The therapist would be the like a licensed professional who's okay, had a okay. certain um, level of usually like a master's degree or more. And they uh, are trained to deal with many more issues. I have a very um, specific set of issues and types of client that I work with. But funny enough, I would say that my ineptness with relationships throughout my life and my um, fear of intimacy that I overcame through my 30s, I think that actually led to what I do now, you know, almost sort of counterintuitively. Mm-hmm. But that's probably not that, that uncommon, you know, because I did overcome those issues and therefore I'm very passionate about it. And it, it's almost like in the program when you alcoholics, recovered alcoholics, helping other alcoholics. It's that same kind of thing. Who better to help another alcoholic find their way than someone who's been through that jungle? So it's the same thing with my surrogate partner work is, um, I was somebody who did everything wrong, um, in my relationship with Joe and then through my thirties trying again. And I would also say that I'm probably not, you know, I have two jobs. One is intimacy coach and one is surrogate partner therapy and, and, there's a lot of overlap there, but my forte is really sort of the, the dating and the initial stages of intimacy, the long-term relationship. I don't call myself a relationship coach and surrogate partner therapy doesn't address a lot of long-term relationship issues, but those early stages, you know, when, when you're first meeting and, and, um, the anxiety that comes up and the ability to be authentic you know, in those early stages, really be yourself when you're feeling a little anxiety, especially the more you like the person and, and being vulnerable and allowing yourself to um, feel that vulnerability and uh, the potential for rejection. So uh, a lot of the surrogate partner therapy works with um, those early stages of dating and getting to know someone and developing a relationship. And then relationship therapy, I think, is kind of the next the next step. So I'm not sure if I was answering your question, but that's kind of, I think, what led me to want to get into it. In fact, when I found the training for a surrogate, to become a surrogate partner in 2015 is when I discovered I could get trained for this and do it. I mean, I knew it was a thing because I'd seen the movie, The Sessions, and I'd probably read about it here or there. And But I, I just... I don't think I realized that it was something that there was a training organization that you could apply to. And it's really difficult to get in. There's a tremendous amount of writing and essays and letters of recommendations. And they're very picky about who they accept. But I applied in 2015. I was actually looking into um, going back to school to become a sex therapist. I was looking at what sort of college credits I would need. And somehow in, in my Googling, looking at different colleges, I stumbled on this line of work where mm-hmm. you work with the client and their therapist and I, and it just like a t- you know you just have the skies parted and the light bulb goes <laughs> off and the angels speak to you and it's like this is what you're supposed to be doing and I was like oh my gosh my whole life has led me to this really and so uh, I applied and and it took months to hear back and get in and then I did my training about five years ago in 2016 and that's a uh, two weeks, very intensive, like 12 hours a day. And then I did my internship, which can take two or three years. Mine took two years. And then they offered me certification, which, um, I eventually declined. And so I'm not associated with them anymore, but I will say that they are, um, an amazing organization. The, um, IPSA is what we call them, the International Professional Surrogates Association. And they're the main training body in America and really kind of the world. And they have, 
less than 50 surrogate partners working in the United States. Most of them are in California, but they have an incredible code of ethics and a rigorous training program, and they do really, really important work. And um, yeah, so that's how I got into it. Just I've always been drawn to and fascinated by uh, sexuality and I think sexual healing and the, the psychology of sexuality. And so... You know, I got into it at 48, but most people who get into it are a little bit older. The thing that's different about surrogate partner therapy is that it is experiential, right? So the thing that makes it the rigorous training, the very few people who do it, right? The thing that sets it apart from just getting a relationship coach or going to, you know, I've been to relationship therapy, right? But this is not the same thing in that you are actually having sexual touch, nudity. And I have read that there is sometimes penetration involved. And so I'm wondering, you know, a couple of things. To me, it sounds very therapeutic. It sounds like there's lots of circumstances where, you know, particularly um, as I've done research around it, people who have trauma around sex would be incredibly difficult to have a sex life after that, right? So things like that. How is that seen in, in the eyes of the law different than sex work if you're having if if penetrative sex is possible, if you're being paid to have that kind of sexual contact? How does that work? Right. So what's really interesting, um, and I'll take this question in two parts, the status of the legality versus illegality of surrogate partner therapy is completely unknown. It's, it, mm. it doesn't, it doesn't really exist. There's nobody's ever said one way or another because it's never been challenged in court. Not ever. Mm. Um, the closest that any law enforcement, um, representative has ever come to speaking on it was Kamala Harris when she was the, um, attorney general of California was asked about it. And she said, if it's the words that she used, if it's referred by a therapist and it's among consenting adults not versus minors, mm-hmm. then it's not illegal. Got it. But, it, but it's never been challenged. In uh, I think the only place that I know of in the world where it's not only officially legal, but state supported is in Israel where um, they don't support it for all of the patients, but the, um, you know, we work with a lot of disabled clients. And so mm-hmm. a lot of their um, veterans who have, who come back with, you know, physical issues and injuries, um, the state actually pays for their surrogate partner therapy, which I just think is fantastic. So the difference, and this question comes up a lot because technically you could say in what would be an average, uh, length of the length of an average series would be say 15 sessions of two two hours each. So let's say 30 hours. I mean, it could be a little bit less. It could be a lot more, but that's pretty average. The final for me, the way I work, usually the last three sessions will involve intercourse. The uh, fourth to the last, the 11th session uh, usually is when we work on oral sex. Sexual touching and exploration and skill building starts around session seven. Uh, the nude exercises start around session four, but ultimately in those 30 hours, 10 to 15% at the most is sexual activity. So Mm. there's that, but I think even more important, what really, what really differentiates it from sex work is that the intent 
the intent of sex work is entertainment and gratification and it's a transaction and uh, most sex workers are hoping for repeat business. And um, I want to say straight out, I fully support sex work. Um, I think it should be decriminalized. I believe that sex for sex sake and sex for no other reason than pleasure should is a perfectly healthy, God-given right, I think. I believe it's our birthright. I think it's a wonderful thing. But the intent of surrogate partner therapy is healing. It's edu- sex education and sexual healing. So the intent is completely different. While sex is a, while intercourse is a part of it, it's like I said, 10 to 15%. And that's not just the time spent on it, but what we're really doing, because like you mentioned, people with trauma, people with sexual trauma or abuse or sexual shame from religious upbringing or bullying or uh, people who were just born with a hypersensitive personality who felt othered and were just super shy and introverted and then able to make the kind of connections and had some awkward experiences that made them feel so bad that they just never pursued it. I mean, I work up a lot of later life virgins who are normal people who were just had enough bad experiences that they couldn't really throw themselves into dating. And so they end up 30, 40, 50, even 70 years old. And they just, at some point it just gets too awkward and they just stop even trying. What surrogate partner therapy is really about is, is helping the client through issues of physical and emotional intimacy. And so a lot of the early work is about just getting comfortable being in the room with the woman, getting comfortable um, uh, not being so much in your head and in your anxiety. Overcoming anxiety is such a huge part of it. Learning to drop into your body, to be able to focus on sensation, to be able to um, touch in a comfortable way, in in a tactile way, hands and arms and face and body parts that aren't, you know, typically thought of as sexual. And then slowly moving up to, um, you know, there's a, there's a bonding that starts to happen and a connection that starts to happen and eventually an attachment that starts to happen. And at times the client feels like they're falling in love. Now this is such a structured process that it's a, that we're prepared for that. And we have ways of working with that and slowly easing them into a place where they're going to be ready for it to end. And they're going to feel good. And maybe, you know, they'll feel that sense of loss, but when you go out into the world, and you have relationships, you're going to go through that too. So it's good actually for them right. to experience attachment and maybe even a sense of falling in love and then how to deal with that. So we're teaching all of that. We're, you know, we're helping them uh, experience what it's like to connect and trust and bond and be attuned with the, with your partner to be comfortable being naked with your partner to, to, um, develop sexual skills and sensual skills and to um, tap into that instinctual sexual self. But there's also a tremendous amount of communication. In fact, the first like six sessions or so, it's much more about communication and attunement than it is about Mm -hmm. sexuality. So I'm kind of bouncing around a lot here, but um, when you talk about intimacy, it's, it's both emotional and physical and we cover the full gamut of that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it definitely, it actually sounds like a really good thing that anyone could have in some ways. Like, <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, I, let, I let, had it in my thirties. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like learning how to, you know, have those conversations. Like, I think it's, you know, as I'm thinking about it, albeit when I first heard about it, you know, feeling very, 
feeling like it was very a foreign idea. But when you describe it, I'm like, yeah, that makes complete sense of like learning how to interact and, and you know, do these these things that many of us learn in ways that aren't so pretty, right? Um, (laughs) You know, we do, we fumble through them in high school and college, but thankfully our partners are fumbling, fumbling through them with us. So it's somehow just easier. And then for a lot of the surrogate partner clients, you know, they're, they've gotten past that. And all of a sudden everyone, because most of my clients are men. And so most women expect a guy who's 24, 25 or older to know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And, and, fumbling isn't really allowed. It's not acceptable, you know? So tell me a bit, can you give me some examples of the types of cases that you've worked on and, and how they, cause I'm making up stories, right? I'm making up stories about this. And, and, um, in my head, in my head, you know, I I'm trying to picture like what the scenarios are. And I'm just curious, I'm sure people listening are like, okay, so what is the What's the, what kind of clients are you seeing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find that the most interesting. Um, that would be my first question too. Uh, the first thing I want to say is because whenever I get asked that question, I always forget to say this. There is an amazing book by Cheryl King. Now she was my mentor. She's, um, been a surrogate partner. I think she still is. I'm not sure, but for at least 20 years when, when I met her five years ago and she wrote this amazing book called The Touch of Love. And it is, it lays out chapter each chapter basically describes a session. Okay. So it, it, it okay. describes it. She takes, she sort of makes a composite character based on some of the most common issues that we deal with. And then every chapter she describes what the next session is like. And it's a really quick read, but it explains surrogate partner therapy probably better than I could in a million interviews. So I just want to say that. And you can get it on Amazon. Her name's Cheryl King with Cheryl with a C, the touch of love. So the most common things that I see later life virginity with the big three dysfunctions, you know, ED, premature ejaculation, delayed ejaculation, anorgasmia sometimes, sexual shame. I work with a lot of clients who've had some sort of trauma or sexual abuse. And so they've learned to dissociate or detach. Mm-hmm. They're very touch avoidant. Um, so there's, you know, and those are the cases where it will usually go on longer than 15 sessions because they're moving at a a slower pace. Um, But lots of performance anxiety, also disability. I work with a lot of clients who have various forms of disability, whether they were born with those or they were from some injury later in life. A client with cerebral palsy who had um, his genitals worked you know, he was incredibly brilliant and funny and, and, you know, everything from the neck up was just exceptional. You know, I mean, it was the best company. Um, and one arm worked kind of fairly well, but, uh, trying to figure out how he can function and please his partner and maneuver and, you know, what, like the real practicalities sometimes of the sexual act so that when he meets someone and starts to fall in love, he doesn't have to figure all that out with her. Right. So, I mean, he had, he probably had fewer confidence issues than most of the, you know, the average person out there. But at the same time, that what we do can be a very practical kind of help. I worked with a client once and I obviously I can't get too detailed because I would yeah, never yeah. want him to be identified. Sure. But this was somebody who had um, dwarfism combined with an injury combined with um, a couple of severe tragedies that all happened around the same time, per- personal tragedies in his life. So his confidence took a massive blow at the same time. And it, and then, and he had a really hot girlfriend. Um, he got a lot of mojo until all of this went down. 
so between the injury and the dwarfism and the self-confidence issues, he just wasn't sure he was having trouble just going out there and, and finding another girlfriend. So we not only were working on his self-esteem and his ability to just be vulnerable and authentic and, and be able to connect and, and bond, but what positions was he going to be able to do, right. you know? Um, and so we spent a lot of time figuring out, trying different positions and trying, you know, using some accessories like certain pillows and, um, you know, they make certain, uh, accessories like sex pillows that you can use to prop you up this way and that way. So I really love working. My favorite types of issues to work with clients to work with are probably the disabled and, um, later life virgins just for various reasons. And, and those, do comprise a, a big part of my client base. Um, there are also male surrogate partners who work with women who have vaginismus, which um, you had just mentioned you were reading about, which is when, um, for a variety of reasons, a woman's vaginal muscles just clench up so much that she can't have penetration. And so that's a process that's not actually, I learned about it in training, but I didn't learn that in depth, like a lot of the, there's, I think, six male surrogate partners that I know of. Um, and they work with women who have that, but body image issues. I think that probably is most of what we, what we work with. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with the cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. 100% of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, matcha maiden organic matcha powder, love me some green tea, golden grind turmeric latte blend, and prana chai original blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The turmeric latte blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The prana chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with the cause. So again, go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. So... One of the things I was reading from your pre-interview is that there, that, or, and I, then I went on and, and did some research around, um, you work with a lot of erectile dysfunction clients. And I thought, well, that's interesting, right? Because that's, you know, there's a huge pharmaceutical market for that. And why aren't they, you know, geez, it seems like, you know, if from an economical standpoint, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd get medication or whatever. That's at least that's the mindset that I think the average American is supposed to have about ED. And what I read was it's mostly 
emotional. Like there, it is, it is primarily an emotional problem, you know, could be related to trauma, could be really, you know, different things. And, and that's a client you work with. Can you tell me a little bit more about that particular population? Cause it seems like it's a big problem in America and something that you work with regularly. Yeah. There can be a lot of causes for it or a lot of factors that come into play. Frequently, it's a combination of physiological and psychogenic, mm-hmm. but I can, I can definitely work with those clients as well. You know, I mean, one of the first things I do is ask him, have you had, depending on his age, especially, but have you had your testosterone checked and even your thyroid and some other issues? Uh, it, have you had your pelvic floor? Have you had an exam mm-hmm. to see if you have um, hypertension in your pelvic floor? Are you tensing up your pelvic floor uh, too early in the sexual arousal process? So all of these are like physical issues, but some of them can be sparked by you know emotional and mental stuff. And when a guy is in his 20s or 30s and having ED, mm-hmm. odds are that it's all or at least mostly you know, a psychogenic factor or factors. So performance anxiety is a huge one. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we raise our men in this world to believe that the success or failure of every sexual encounter rests on their shoulders. You know, women, um, maybe nobody's going to call a woman like this a great lay, quote unquote, but a woman can still just lay back and do nothing and get away with it, right? A man can't. And we raise men to believe that you need to get hard, stay hard, know everything that she wants to do, know how to do it, do it right, don't ask any questions. And then when she's done having all of her pleasure, when you've done the sex to her and given her all the pleasure, then you need to come on command. You need to orgasm on on command. And that's how sex works. And so it's this tremendous sort of sense of responsibility (laughs) that they take on. I just want to say that (laughs) my experience is just just to add in here is that is is the opposite. Oh really? <laughs> My experience is is that 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 it's just like they they have no idea what's going on with you at all whatsoever and they're just doing the few things that they know how to do. And then that's, that's the end of that. There's another problem that might have something to do with this. And that's that porn has become ubiquitous. Like my generation did not have porn at our fingertips, you know? So we learned through fumbling, through Mm -hmm. talking to our friends, you know, we kind of figured things out on our own, but the younger generations the millennials and generation Z, I mean, they have porn to look at. And unfortunately that's like learning, learning, sex through porn is like learning how to drive from the fast and the furious, right? Like that's (laughs) not totally. Totally. So guys get the impression that what's happening in porn, they pick up a few things and then they do those things and they're not supposed to ask. And women, of course, are not raised to, to assert ourselves or our wants or our needs. And so this goes on long enough and the guy just figures on, you know, I've got it down. And then at some point, especially if like porn dependent erections are, are one factor I see causing ED. Um, There's a lot of guys who have associated that specific imagery with their arousal from the first time they got aroused Mm -hmm. to every single time they've masturbated. And so, you know, maybe that started at 12 and then at 18, they're actually having a sexual interaction. And for, but for six years, 
they've never had a heart on without porn in front of them. And so they're with a woman they're really into and they can't keep it hard. I can work with that. There's, you know, it, it's just a series. It's a, it's a process, but it's just that they've developed a neural pathway that they have to sort of veer off from and you help them develop a new neural pathway that shows them that they can actually get aroused and stay aroused without the porn. It just, it's just a process of experientially going through some interactions that show them that they can do that in in a very safe container with someone that they trust, who's not going to judge them. But a lot of guys have ED because they're uh, tensing up their pelvic floor muscles too soon in the process and blocking blood flow. Um, Mm -hmm. Pelvic floor tension is a huge contributor to delayed ejaculation, anorgasmia, premature ejaculation, and some cases of ED. So that's not something I'm specifically trained in. I just happen to know about it. And I can help them determine whether they might want to go see a a pelvic floor specialist and do some uh, tension release work there. There are some breathing exercises and some focusing exercises. You know, a lot of them are just so much in their head, especially if it happens one or two times then that can kind of set them up for that self-perpetuating because the third time they're like, oh, is it going to happen again? And suddenly they're in their body and they're not feeling their, their, they're in their head. They're not feeling their body or their excitement or their arousal. They're not in, in that instinctual sexual energetic exchange anymore. And so all of a sudden it keeps happening because they keep expecting it to happen and they keep worrying about it. They're catastrophizing, they're spectating, they're in their head wondering, is it going to happen? And of course that makes it happen because they're not. So I teach them to get back. A lot of what we do is teach our clients to, to get back into your body, to focus on the sensations. And when your mind wanders or when you start spectating, which means like you become a spectator of the event mm-hmm. versus a participant, how to get out of that and get back into their body. And that process alone makes helps them make tremendous progress with ED. Yeah, that you know it, it makes it makes a lot of sense and and one of the things you were saying around like how we raise our kids what to believe and and we raise our women to believe that a man's erection is directly proportional to their attraction to you. And and I mean I've been in that situation, right? I've been in that situation where, where you're just like you're kind of offended even though you know you shouldn't be. And yeah. and it's like, you know, that is, there's some you know, message that we're receiving. And of course, as an adult and, and, you know, later in my years having a very different experience, but it is, you know, we're not taught how to deal with, and particularly, you know, as it relates to porn, you know, I, I have an experience where I I hooked up with a guy and he turned out to have literally a micro penis. And I was, first of all, I didn't mention it. Second of all, I was thoroughly had no idea what to do, like what at all whatsoever, not even not how to talk about it. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know to if I should pretend. I mean, literally could not have intercourse. So I'm there. What do I do in this situation? And I'm a person who doesn't want to shame someone who, you know, who, who were not given skills to talk about sex or to, to, and, and, and he wasn't given skills to, you know, I can imagine him being in a situation where, yeah, he's traumatized because he puts, he doesn't know how to talk about it. He puts people in a situation that leave him open for complete humiliation. So there's, I could see the situations that come up where none of us know what to do. And so people get hurt. Yes. God, that situation you're describing is such a, it encapsulates so well 
this incredible uh, uh, communication breakdown or lack of communication that we have about sex. We don't talk about it. There's so much shame attached to it. And it's, it's, it's absurd and it's gone on for so long. And you're right. Women are, are driving thought or, or, or motivation so much of the time is how can I protect the other person's feelings, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, everything is a two-sided coin that there's, that's a, that's a great thoughtful way to be, but at the same time, it has tremendous drawbacks because what we have to do is learn how to be able to bring things up. And sometimes it's not going to work. Sometimes there's nothing you can say in that situation. That's, that's going to, because I've been in that situation and and nothing I said, and I did my best could get him to talk about it. And he ended up, and I think the reason he chose me to, to go out with, cause he had this man who had a micropenis because he could tell that I was just a really compassionate person. Mm-hmm. I think he thought maybe mm-hmm. I would know what to do. And so I just, I noticed, and I just said a few things like, let's try this or what about this or what works for you? What would make you happy? And mm-hmm. he couldn't talk about it. And he ended right. up just going home. Yeah. So if he can't talk about it and you can't talk about it. And it, the thing is, there are some cases where a man's erection is not as firm as it should be because he's really not a hundred percent into her. And it might not be yeah. because she's not an attractive woman. It might be because he has a certain type, totally. but, she, but she was available and she was willing. And guys have this mindset, like if you can't turn down an available partner, cause you're not right, a real right, right. man if you do that. So he takes right. home someone that he's only mildly interested in. So that does come up sometimes. And, and one of yeah. the things I teach my clients is what is your type and how to, and then when you're with someone that you are really into, how to communicate to her that it's not about her. And, but even the most astute women, there's always that part of us that mm-hmm. thinks, you know, I've, I failed a little bit as a woman because what we want, what we want more, men want more than anything to get the job done. They want to, you know, they want to, that's what makes them feel like men is, is, is getting the job done, whether that's sex or fixing the roof or whatever. And for women, it's being desirable, feeling desirable, you know, having men just really want them. Mm -hmm. And so we get triggered and that's, and it's a, you know, it's an opportunity for growth is what that is, but it does lead to awkward, a lot of awkward situations. And, you know, I think the thing with Viagra and, you know, all the others, thank God for them, because what they can do is they can help someone who's having a minor ED issue that comes up a little bit here and there, Mm -hmm. power through, have some positive experiences, remember, develop that neural pathway that says, oh, I got this, I can do this, you know, and then sometimes that's all he needs, you know. And especially for men who are a little bit older or they've had some surgeries and so they need that little extra boost. But what I hate to see is when, when it's really a psychogenic issue, when it's really more of an anxiety or, you know, I'm too much in my head, I can't relax. And he's starting to rely on a substance to help him instead of addressing the real issue because over time it's going to continue and it's going to get worse, especially once your testosterone starts dropping. So you may as well work on those, the the psychological aspects of it with a professional, if you can, and get past it and then just keep a Viagra in your pocket for emergencies. Well, so I have a couple technical questions about this. Do you see more than one client? Do you work on more than one case at a time? I have multiple clients at a time, but I never see more than one per day. And the reason is I really, when you do this work to do it right, to do it well, 
you are authentically engaged and connected. I don't necessarily get attached to my clients. I've just developed an ability over the years to, to not do that when I know that that's not appropriate for the situation. But human beings are wired to get attached, not just connect, mm-hmm. but to attach. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. We're wired for that. And it, and it, it's meaningful, but I can connect and I'm fully there and fully present and fully exchanging that energy with my client. And so even though my surrogate partner sessions are only two hours long for me to then take a break, even for two or three hours, and then fully engage with another person in the same day, I'm not wired to do that. So yeah. I, yeah. So because my intimacy coaching practice, um, I get more intimacy coaching clients and they deal with the same issues as my surrogate partner clients, but just on a less intense level, you know, the same dysfunctional issues, the same performance anxiety, some with disabilities or injuries or age issues, or, um, a little bit of sexual trauma. Usually they, they've worked a lot of that through with, um, a therapist. Um, but maybe their issue is fairly new or it's just not as intense or, you know, so I'll see, uh, more of those in the course of a year than I will surrogate partner clients. And I won't see, but the surrogate partner clients, I mean, that's just more, it's more intense for, for my clients and for myself. And so I will rarely see more than two at a time. And usually I'll stagger them. Like I generally will see one client every other week, sometimes every week, but a lot of them don't have time for that. So I'll see them every other week. And if I can, I'll stagger them. If I have two surrogate partner clients going at once, I'll see one the first week of the month and then the next one. And then, the, you know, mm-hmm. like that, because, um, there's more paperwork involved. There's more, you know, I'm talking to the therapist, there's more work involved. Um, but also I just really throw myself into it. And I, I know that there are some surrogate partners out there that, that can, juggle like I think one of them told me the most and all she does is surrogate partner therapy no coaching of any other kind this is all she does and the most she will have is seven going at once because it is emotionally taxing it's yeah I don't want to say draining because that makes it sound like it's depleting and it's not I feel energized afterwards but also spent you know after every session so you know and I'll only see I don't see clients five days a week either you know three days a week usually tops how is the experience for you of having, you know, oral sex and and penetrative sex with each of these clients, you know, towards the end? Like, how do you process that experience? Well, I think I've always been a very sexually open person. Like, I, I had a high sex drive from a young age. I was very curious about it. And despite the fact that I, my Catholic upbringing and just sort of, you know, society and, and the even girlfriends, you know, who would slut shame you in high school because that happens. I didn't yeah. get slut shamed by guys you know, nearly as much as I did by, by women. But I just realized early on my sexuality was one of the, was a, a, a big part of my identity. I sensed that it was a beautiful thing. I, th- I sensed that it was my birthright and that it was God given no matter what the church said. And that I was going to, I was very curious and I was going to explore it and I was going to enjoy it. And I mean, I screwed up every other part of my life. If you read my book, you'll see, I mean, all my relationships were dysfunctional. My, I, you know, I was a, I was a severe drug addict and alcoholic and, uh, but, but I protected and nurtured my sex life as much as I could in my, my, my sexual self. And I started stripping at 18 and I 
worked for a total of 14 years as a stripper in three iterations. So from beginning was 18 years old to the end was 42 years old. And I worked in other more intimate arenas of the sex industry that I won't get into too much, but I've spent 25 years of my life exchanging sexual energy with men. And I've had very, very few negative experiences. I've, mm. I, I will say this. I had a great relationship with my father. My father made me feel loved and cherished and like he delighted in me. And, you know, there were, it wasn't perfect. Um, he wasn't, uh, he didn't protect me necessarily. He was the most dependable person when I was, when I really needed someone to protect me. But aside from that, my father was my first image of what men are and how they'll treat you. And he treated me like, like a treasure. Mm -hmm. So I've gone through life being attracting, I think just almost unconsciously attracting those kind of men. So as someone who was who has technically been a sex worker for 25 years of her adult life to have had as few negative experiences as I've had. I feel incredibly lucky and privileged. But when I got into surrogate partner work, I mean, I was an experienced person sexually by any standard. And um, I have always found great joy in providing rewarding experiences to my partners. And so for me, it's... um you know, sex can be so many different things. There are times when I'm reaching the end of that 15 session series, like say we're in the last three sessions and mm -hmm. we're having penetration for the first time, or say we're in the, the 11th session and we're doing oral sex. To me, it's a really, by then we've really connected. We're, we're feeling very close where I know him very well. We trust each other. We're enjoying each other. We've seen each other naked. We've, we've explored each other's genitals it's exciting for me to give oral sex to this client and to teach him how to give it to me. I mean, first of all, on a very superficial level, it's a pleasurable experience get receiving it. Um, even if they don't quite know what they're doing, I'm teaching them how to do it. So then it becomes a pleasurable experience. And then I find, you know, providing that to them and feeling them, you know, literally feeling them in your mouth getting ex sexually aroused and excited. And I mean, it's to me, there's no downside to that. It's a wonderful experience. I love it. I love, I love being able to do it. And then teaching them how to do like the first, the first day that we have um, penetration. So say session 12, usually um, I'm teaching them the three basic um, positions of missionary cowgirl and doggy style. And it can feel a little sort of instructional, you know, I mean, it's, it can be a little playful, but there's a lot of instruction because I want to make sure that they're getting, you know, the particulars mm -hmm. of like where to, how to hold your weight, how, how to balance on your knees, how to thrust the right way, you know, getting them to, some guys are really stiff in the hips. And so thrusting technique is a, you know, I really want to, so it can feel really instructional and, and almost like the least sexy thing in the world. But then you get into the next day where we go over those three again, and I teach them a couple other less common ones, you know, just standing up or bent over the bed or bent over the counter, you know, different things like that. And that gets to be fun because they're like, a lot of them are like, oh, I didn't know you could do it this way. And, and they're getting the hang of it. And they're, you know, so it's really fun. It's like an honor to be in a position to um, teach someone that I it's, it's a ball. And then around somewhere around that, that 13th or 14th session, they go from being the student who's, you know, watching and learning and, and memorizing and, and figuring it all out 
to oftentimes almost suddenly in the blink of an eye, tapping into their inner sexual self and their mojo just comes out. And all of a sudden I can tell they're going from, am I, am I moving my hips right? Am I carrying my weight right? To just sinking into their body and just having sex with me like a lover and you can feel it. And it's my favorite part of the work is when that happens, when all of a sudden their mojo comes out and they just, they just, all their sexual self is just not buried inside anymore. It's, it's, it's coming through their skin. And then the last session I like to have where I'm really not an instructor at all. We're just going to pretend we're kind of on a date and we're just going to fool around and let it flow. And we're, it's like a peer to peer thing. I'm not an instructor. You're not a student. We're just going to do all the things that you just learned in a natural instinctual way. And, and watching someone go from, you know, someone who's, who's just very anxious and tense and awkward around sex to, to, um, behaving like a lover that I just, I don't want to say picked up in a bar, but somebody that <laughs> like I'm dating, you yeah. know, it's an amazing experience. And to know that you were a part of that. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's a tra- you, you get to see that transformation. Yeah. 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 Have you worked with women? I have not. I am open to it. Not so much as an intimacy coach because I feel like there are... Women learn a a little bit of a different way. You Mm. know, Um, they have a little bit different issues. My affinity and my strengths are really for working with men, probably because in some ways I, I sort of think like a man. And I feel like there are some really good intimacy coaches out there who are really focused on how women think and feel and, and their issues. And so I feel like... I at some point I may develop a little bit more those skills of working with women. So as an intimacy coach, I don't yet as a surrogate partner, I'm open to working with anyone intersex LGBTQ, uh, uh, trans folk, um, the, all across the, the, every gender and, and, and sexual expression. I just don't get many calls or really any as of yet. Almost everyone that I've worked with as a surrogate partner has been, a straight man or a bi man. I expect at some point I will get some calls from like, um, there are some women I think who have had enough sexual trauma that they want help exploring their Mm -hmm. sexuality and their body, but it's just too uh, uncomfortable for them to work with a man. And so there are some female surrogate partners who have worked with women and, and that can work really well. Sometimes a trans person with new body parts needs Mm. could really use a little instruction and help learning how they work. And so um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I heard from some trans women too in the future, but uh, it just hasn't happened yet. What's the screening process? What what would discount someone from your services? What are the things you've turned people away for? Most of the time, most, the biggest reason that I turn people away is because they're in a relationship and Mm. they're married usually. And their partner just doesn't want to be part of the healing process. Maybe they've got some conflict going on or the partner is just, you know, maybe a little selfish in that way or doesn't really want to be having sex. But surrogate partner therapy was developed for singles, you know, because if you're having sexual issues and you're in a relationship, those sexual issues are by definition part of your relationship. And so you're really better off going to a sex therapist they will teach you a lot of the skills that I do in session. They will teach the, a couple how to do them at home. 
and come back and report to them, right? They'll give them the instruction. The couple will do them together at home. But for me to work with someone who's got a wife at home, it's not very effective because a lot of the issues are what's happening between that couple. So that's that's the main reason. And then there are some, it's, it's very rare that I hear from someone who really just wants to indulge in some sexual interaction without really having a problem to work on. But it does happen. It's just that surrogate partner therapy is not inexpensive and it's yeah. also time consuming. And you can hire a escort for um, yeah, a lot, lot easier and a lot cheaper. Yeah. So yeah, but those are the probably the two main reasons. And then sometimes, you know, with surrogate partner therapy, always, always, always a therapist is involved. And so I get clients who I think are perfect for this therapy. I think I can really help them. We'll have an hour long talk on the phone and then they'll tell me, you know, I've just left my therapist. I'm, I'm usually the first question I ask is, are you working with a therapist and are they open to it? Sometimes they'll say, well, I'm working with a therapist. I haven't asked them yet, but I thought I'd talk to you first and then I'll talk to them. And so they'll talk to me and they're like, yeah, I really want to do this, but I just don't want to involve my therapist. I don't, or their therapist, maybe they talk to them and they're like, I don't, I don't want to involve myself with this. Texas is still a little bit of a conservative area and the licensing board. There are some therapists here who believe in surrogate partner therapy, but they don't want to partake in it because they just don't want to get any flack from their colleagues or from the licensing board. And I think that's changing slowly. You know, there's, I know of maybe six sex therapists in town that are, that I've worked with that are more than happy to, to be the supervising therapist to, for a client who comes to me who doesn't have one, I'll send them to the therapist. I'll work with them for a while. Then the three of us will work together. But there's a lot of therapists here that pulled me aside. I was at a conference once and I met a bunch of sex therapists there. And a few of them pulled me inside and said, I'm so glad that you're here in Austin now doing this. I had just started. Um, I, I can't do it. Um, my, uh, su- my supervisor, cause a lot of them are supervised by a, that's mm-hmm. part of their licensing, just worries about the reputation, you know, or whatever. But the premier training or the premier clinical sexology organizations in the country, which is ASECT and, and 4S, the Society for Scientific Study of Sexuality and American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists, they support surrogate partner therapy. They were kind of on the fence or at least not wanting to say one way or another for a long time, but now they really fully support it. So I think things are changing, but some therapists, and here's the other thing, sex therapists get paid for the time that they're working with a client, but they have to be on the phone with me after every session I have with that client. And that's an extra 30 minutes out of their day that they're not getting paid for. So there's that. Most sex therapists I know are just crazy busy and, you know, it's just, they don't, have time for it. Why wouldn't so, they get paid for it? Well, the client's paying me, right? He's paying me yeah. for our time together. And then he's going to see that usually the next day or the next week, he's going to see his therapist. So every time he sees me, he then has to go see his therapist. So he's okay. paying two professionals. Yeah. And then she, she and I, or he and I get on the phone, the therapist, and I will get we'll on the, the phone and discuss the case. And we do that every week. So who's going to pay for that? I'm not going to, it's not going to come out of my pocket. I don't want to ask the, you know, it's just, uh, the therapists who do it recognize that it's just sort of part of the deal. It, it, and if they really care about their client and they believe this therapy is going to help them, they'll do it. But it's some therapists just don't have time for it. So that's probably the third reason I've had to turn people down. If they say, I want to do this, but I don't want to 
bring in a therapist. I don't either have the time or the money or my therapist doesn't want to do it. I say, I can't, I can't do it. It's not surrogate partner therapy if I'm not working with your therapist. Okay. So you have to, that's like, yeah, that's one of, that's the biggest difference. I mean, there's a number of differences between my intimacy coaching work and my surrogate partner therapy work, but that's the number one difference is you have to have a therapist and I have to be in touch with them if it's surrogate partner therapy. Yeah. Do you work with major, like, have you worked with some people who've had major trauma and that's the big, the big piece of, of what they're coming to you? Yeah. And I, I've worked with clients who've had every level of trauma from, um, a couple instances in their childhood that affected them to ongoing, like decades of sexual abuse and combined with, you know, the death of a, parent. I had a client once, I won't get too detailed, but not only was there sexual abuse throughout his childhood, but then both of his parents died. And then the the relative who took them in was very cold. This client stays with me more than any other because we couldn't ever get very far. He had so much trauma that, that even touching hands and arms was really challenging for him. And so we never could get very far. I eventually helped him find a better therapist than the one that he had. And, and I, I, I have, I have no idea how he's doing, but yeah, there's a lot of trauma out there. And so we have a great success rate. I, mean, I think so, relative to therapists in general, surrogate partner therapy has a really, really great success rate. I would say 80% of my clients go on to live significantly improved lives but then there's always the cases where, you know, they're just really tough and you can only do so much. Yeah. I mean, what's for someone who, you know, the just touching arms and just that kind of thing, just being in that, have you had a, a circumstance where you were able to move past that, that there was significant trauma and you were, you know, that was a challenge, um, but it just took a lot longer. Have you had really long cases? Yeah, I think the longest case I ever worked was probably, I want to say a year, I give or take a month or two. I, I couldn't, I can't remember exactly, but you know, there are times and you will, re, you know, you, you will discover early on that the pace needs to be slower. You know, you'll know you're always checking in with the client. One of the things about a good surrogate partner is they're very attuned and they're because, because of course I'm talking with their therapist after every session, because sometimes a client, especially a man will be in session and will be doing an exercise. And maybe we're at the point where we're touching, um, legs, you know, we're, we're doing a leg caress and I'm asking him how he's feeling about it. Maybe I know that this client has a lot of trauma and we've taken like many extra weeks to get to this point. And he's telling me, no, this is good. I like it. I'm, I'm not, my anxiety is only on at a four. It's not any higher than a four on a scale of one to 10. And then I get on the phone with this therapist after he's met, maybe he goes and meets with her a couple of days later. And then she and I get on the phone and she tells me, oh yeah, he was very uncomfortable that whole time. He just didn't know how to tell you. So that right. does happen. So thankfully that's why you work with the therapist. But I have friends who are surrogate partners. Um, and I know uh, some of the ones who've been doing it a long time, especially, I mean, there are cases that can go on for a couple of years, you Yeah, know, whatever the, you know, because like, like you said, I mean, there's a lot of trauma out there and, you just go as slow as, as the client needs to. And as long as they're showing up and they still believe in the work and you're making incremental progress, then, and the, and the therapist feels like it's working too, then why not go a couple years? What else are you going to do? You know, I mean, to me, 
not doing this work, it would be like someone who knows CPR and sees someone choking and just walks away. You know, I can't not do this work because I have these skills. And if it, if I meet a client and I think, oh, in the beginning, this, this might take six months or whatever. And then I discover, oh, there's so many more, so much more comes out over the course of those six months. I'm all in, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, yeah, because the, the idea of a life without at least the ability or possibility of emotional and sexual intimacy to me is not a life worth living. I don't want to live that life. And so if I see somebody living that life, who's trying not to, who's showing up, how, how could I walk away from that? How does that affect your life in your dating? Um, I, I would think that that would be difficult for uh, a dating life for you. I think it hasn't affected me, mine too much. I tend to date men who are generally really open-minded anyway, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I always have, but I have had to sit down and explain it, you know? I haven't been in any, since I've been doing this work in the last five years, the longest relationship I've been in, I mean, it was about four months long and I explained it to him and he's like a really practical guy. He, he got it. He thought about it, you know, and he came to, he came to really respect it fairly quickly. And then I was, um, and then, <laughs> and then the other man I was with, it was a year long relationship. It was kind of a casual relationship, but it did last a year. Uh, I actually met him as an intimacy coach. So he understood all about my work before we ever started dating. Mm. I think that I've heard stories from other surrogate partners where they've, they've met someone that they were really into and, and their partner was found it more challenging, you know, um, especially if you're doing it like full time, you know, I, I do my intimacy coaching. I'm a writer. I'm seeing a limited number of surrogate partner clients. So as far as having intercourse with my clients, it's probably fewer. I'm probably doing it with fewer of them than say someone who's seeing nothing but surrogate partner clients. Like my mentor, Cheryl, the woman who wrote that book. Um, I mean, she talks about, She's been married and she talks about how she and her husband handle it. She, you know, most of us work from home, you know, we, we use our bedrooms. It's doing this in an office setting. is just weird. It's, it's not as comfortable and and cozy and safe feeling as a home. And you find your, you find ways um, that work for you. Like you don't, I don't think that most of us go home and talk about our work with our partners as much as, you know, somebody works in a law office or a restaurant, you know, you don't, right. Your partner doesn't want to hear all the details of how you taught a blow, you know, how you taught kind of lingus to your <laughs> client that day. But, um, but a good man, I think would respect the kind of, the kind of people we attract, they respect what we do. I think they respect the sexual healing profession in general. Do you have people who come to you trying to suppress being homosexual or they, they, or, or you just, you help them discover that they're actually not attracted to women? I personally haven't, but I have heard absolutely of that coming up. Um, and that's a sexual healing in and mm-hmm. of itself, I think. And I'm, in fact, I was just reading, um, in Israel where, you know, they, mm-hmm. where this is, a, a an accepted modality, you know, in the Jewish tradition, at least in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, I guess, you know, homosexuality is just not accepted, but what they will do is if they have an Orthodox Jewish man who is homosexual or only, or attracted to men, 
they will send him to a surrogate partner who will not try to convert him. They don't believe in conversion therapy. Surrogate partners do not do that. But they can teach him how to have sex with a woman so that he can be married, have sex with his wife, procreate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may not enjoy it in the same way as if he was with the man, but they, you know, that's another thing that surrogate partner therapy can do. It can, it, they literally, um, uh, there's a rabbi there apparently who is sending all of his gay uh, male congregation to surrogate partners to teach them how to have sex with women so that these men can get married. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I just read that. Yeah, that's that's wild. What do you, how, yeah. how what if you know as a as a kind of wrap up? I'm I'm wondering what things for the rest of us for people listening, those of us who found our way sexually without without help. did the fumbling through what things can we instill as a society in our children and in how we talk about you know sex and even how we talk about surrogate uh partner therapy what are some of the things you would like to see us instilling um in these in the future generations and in our own lives Oh, that's such a good question. Gosh, I hope I can answer it as well as you, as you asked it. I mean, I think the communication and openness are where we start. You know, parents being able to communicate with their children and even model, like when they're communicating with each other, to be able to talk about sex in a way that really normalizes mm-hmm. it, you know, and to be able to explain to your children how everything works and answer all their questions in an age-appropriate way, I think also imparting on some level that sex, people have sex for a lot of different reasons. And and as an expression of love, that's a wonderful way, you know, uh, procreation, of course. Um, But sometimes sex just for pleasure, just for, you know, sometimes sex, that sex is your birthright, pleasurable, a, a vibrant and pleasurable sex life whatever that is for you, whether that includes kink, same-sex partners, polyamory, casual partners, as long as it's consensual and coming from a mature place, that that's all a beautiful thing. I don't know when we're going to get to a point where sex for the sake of pleasure is okay. Like even when you see commercials for, um, think it's wonderful that we're seeing commercials for, for lubricant, for, um, for specifically for older women when their body changes. But what I noticed in this commercial where they were showing this wonderful older woman and her lubricant was that they made a real point of showing her wedding ring. Mm -hmm. Like this is not a woman who's having sex outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like still, you know, and, uh, and I think that would sort of eventually go a long way towards legitimizing what sex workers do which I think is a very valid and legitimate profession in and of itself. I think that normalizing sexual dysfunction Mm. and difficulties and anxiety, you know, because when you gain weight, I mean, or when you, when you're a terrible cook, (laughs) you know, you, you go out and you find a, a coach, you know, or a, a, you take some cooking classes or you go on a diet, you know, or you, you, but when you're having um, performance anxiety or ED or um, vaginal dryness, you know, or anorgasmia, um, it's so shameful. So let's normalize 
pleasurable sex and let's normalize dysfunctional sex. You know, let's just say sex is the most natural thing in the world, but it, but it, it doesn't happen naturally. Mm. Right. Like it's, um, there's nothing wrong with needing help, figuring it out right, and not getting it right. And then having some issues and, and let's, you know, take that even further. Let's start talking about kink and how normal quote unquote kink it kink is. I mean, and how healing kink can be, I mean, kink can be, um, perpetuating, um, some negative patterns, but it can also be very healing and it can also be just something symbolic, you know, it can also be sort of this symbolic thing that is helping a person get in touch with their true sexual self. Sex is such a complicated, a complex entity for lack of a better word. Um, and we can't seem to talk about any of mm. it, you know, not even masturbation. Yeah, it's true. So let's start with communication and normalizing and acceptance. You know, I think, I think those are three, three big keywords there. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time and your openness to describe and, and talk about this because fascinating to me. And, um, and I think, you know, open my eyes to a value and a resource that's available to people who have, who, you know, there's, I'm sure there's many people who would qualify and could be greatly helped by having someone supportive and to go through this process with. And I know that I know so many of us whose our first experiences were not that not, I think most of us, not that. So most of us, yeah, yeah. I think we worked our way there. Um, and and, I'm always surprised when someone tells me about their first experience and it was like this beautiful thing. I was like, Oh wow, you're, you're in the minority. Yeah, exactly. And the rest, you know, and, and many of us, you know, are for whatever reason, keep, you know, interacting and keep having experiences. So eventually we find something, but I could easily see all the the circumstances you described. So I'm really, really pleased to be able to share that resource with people. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's helped people overcome all sorts of stuff. So thank you for your service and your willingness to talk about it. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I was thrilled to be asked to do this and talk about this. I do a lot of interviews about my book, but this is only like my third, just about the surrogate partner therapy. And um, I just, I so appreciate that it, spoke to you and that you took the time to make a whole podcast out of it. I'm it's, I mean, you're, you're one more voice that's helping to normalize it. So thank you. Absolutely. Now I have to figure out how to do it with my young boys and, and not, and not <laughs> totally freak them out as they grow up. I'm picturing like <laughs> masturbation's okay. And then would be like, Oh my God, my mom, you know, <laughs> here's the loop, I'm, not a, you know? I'm, not, I'm not a parent. So that's not my forte. So I don't envy you when you figure that out. Maybe you can, you can tell me if I ever need to know, because oh, yeah, I, that's, I haven't had to do that. You, one. you, you, you so. want to like, it, there's the line, right. Where, you know, cause my, yeah. my son asked me the other day, how did he meant to say how does a how does it feel to have a vagina but he said how does a vagina feel <sighs> and uh and i just looked at him like they're my i have four year old twin boys and i just looked at him like i, I <laughs> um i said i think it feels like having a penis <laughs> that's what i said 
But just, I get these questions, you know, you know, I say, where mommy, how do you know, we were in your tummy and then they'll ask, well, where were we? If, you know, in pictures, they'll say, where were we? And I say, well, you were, you were still in my tummy in a little egg. Oh, how did the egg get there? Well, I was born with it. Well, why did we, you know, and I just, I'm like, oh my God, did you, oh, did you eat the egg? you know, to get into your tummy. I'm like, this has gotten way too complicated. I am not prepared for this, you know, just thinking of all the, the conversation. So it's, uh, I can see how we could screw it up too, you know, how we could there, you know, there's questions about like, you know, they run into the bathroom with you, you're on your period and you're just like, okay, what do I do here? You know, and my husband's horrified and I'm like, I don't want to lie. And, you know, I don't want to, and, but this is how this stuff starts, right? Is like, husband's like, oh my God, embarrassing, whatever. I'm trying to, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying not to freak them out while also being, you know, kind of carrying your message, right? Like let's normalize whatever, but I'm freaked out. (laughs) So I, 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 when I ask you that, I'm, I'm thinking about like, how do I help a generation? You know, how do I do my part in, in creating that normalcy? And it's, it is, it's hard. It's really, it's really, I could see how easily even trying it can go wrong. Yeah. I, I would say that one of the common threads through most of my clients, not all of them, certainly, because it, it does run the gamut a little bit, but, but, but the majority of them had a very negative or or radio silence sort of vibe in the home when it came to sex. Like it was never, ever talked about or, you know, so just the fact that your (laughs) your son could ask you, (laughs) what's it like to have a vagina? I mean, I think that that speaks pretty well to the openness he must feel. That's a good sign to me. Oh, good. I'm glad. I, you know, had no idea how to answer that, but but uh, yeah, I wouldn't you know. either, but it still seems like a good sign that he asked. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> my husband's like, oh my God. You know, he, my husband grew up in Houston and, and I grew up in, you know, the Bay area. So we're both, you know, he's, he, all this stuff comes out when you have kids and just sure. trying to figure out the norms. So it's, it's really great. And, you know, it's, it's nice to know that, you know, that even the attempt to talk about it. Even our fumbling to have the conversation is, is better than nothing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you, Kristen, so much for being here. Really appreciate your time. And please tell my listeners where they can find you, your book, where they can find you online. Yeah, thanks. So um, all of my work from my book and my coaching and the surrogate partner therapy, it's all on one site, kristincasey.com, which is spelled K-R-I-S-T-I-N-C-A-S-E-Y. And my social media links are there as well. Um, I think you can also, if you go to like Facebook or Twitter, I'm under Ms. Kristen Casey, but you can just go to kristincasey.com and you'll find all the links there to Instagram and all that. Awesome. And your book is Rock Monster. Yes. Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. And that's on Amazon. There are links on my site to that as well, or you can just um, search it on Amazon. So, uh, and it's also, you know, in, in all the uh, bookstores, uh, Barnes and Noble or your local indie, go to your local indie stores, put your local indie store. There you go. Awesome. And we'll put um, in the show notes, we'll also put Cheryl, her book, Touch of Love. Yes. Cheryl, Cheryl King, King, Touch of Love. Okay. Thank you yeah, so much. We'll put her book in there too. Awesome. All right. Thanks, thanks so much. Awesome. Good deal. Talk to you soon. Thank Bye. you. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. 
LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.